The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our host, Joel Whipperford, Bag Technology Applications Lead for Winfield United. And filling in for Kyle Reiner over the next few weeks is John Zook, Winfield United agronomist based in southern Minnesota. We're excited on this episode to announce and walk through the 2017 tissue sampling results. John, can you talk about what Winfield United's tissue sampling program is and some of the major findings and trends from last year? All right. So every year we do NutriSolutions 360. I think this year was a great year for tissue sampling. Had several owners, several farmers that I was working with that did find some rather interesting results. Now, every year the results are kind of a little different because it is weather-based and it is based on that growing season. So thinking about 2017 versus 2016, there were some differences, but I always like to break it up and talk about what we see from crop to crop versus from year to year, because I think that's a little bit more important. Looking at some of the results that we see, the biggest one for me in corn is first off, uh, not necessarily looking at the deficiencies you've seen and the trends that you see. So there's some reports that come out. You'll see that zinc was, in 2017, zinc was the most efficient. 81.83% of our samples taken throughout the nation were the most efficient. And that was almost 16,000 samples that we take across the nation that were showing zinc was that deficient. Now, zinc was the most efficient nutrient, but when I first look at it, I want to see what are my mobile nutrients versus what are my immobile nutrients. And so I scroll down at the report and I look at my mobile nutrients and those being nitrogen, sulfur, and boron. And that's going to give me an idea how I always like to look back of maybe how that relates to rainfall in throughout the season and then nutrient timing as far as uptake goes into the plant. So nitrogen, for example, this year across the nation, we saw 68% of the time nitrogen was deficient. Most of the time, if I go back to southern Minnesota where I practice most of my agronomy, I find that if we get 6 inches to 10 inches of rain in April, I'm way over 68% deficient in nitrogen. So I can always pair my nitrogen deficiencies with that rainfall that I get through that April to June time frame. You know, John, as you're looking at these tissue samples, some parts of the country do a little bit of nitrate sampling, and you talk about having a a wet spring. When you're looking at a tissue sample, can you break them out between macro and micronutrients and what things have parity to a soil sample with a tissue sample? Yeah, so great question, Joel, on the macro versus micro. Our macros, as we know, our key ones are NPK. Really, those are very important in the tissue sample and also very important in the soil sample. Nitrogen and potassium are probably the two that I pay most attention to when considering a tissue sample, whereas phosphorus and potassium would be the two that I pay most attention to when I was looking at a soil sample. So when I think about the relationship that we might see between the two and what I have seen, especially with the potassium side of things, is if you can see that you're getting good potassium uptake in season, it might give you a reference of how well your soil is is actually giving that potassium back to the plant. So in that situation, you could potentially have a low testing potassium 
but a high testing tissue sample, and maybe that's because that soil actually gives up potassium fairly well? Yeah, so some of the things we've learned in agronomy probably over the last 10 years and probably still going to be learning is, yeah, we always want to build to a certain soil test level, but sometimes with the soil, its ability to reform and make sure that the potassium is available isn't necessarily always dependent upon the overall fertility level. So the micronutrients, when you look at those, what's the hierarchy of of micronutrients? What's the most important micronutrient to start with? Is there a most important micronutrient to start with, or do you look at them all equally? Okay, for corn, there's definitely a hierarchy. The first one is zinc, and in corn, that's the one that we find is the most efficient. Year after year after year after year, zinc is the most efficient. And Joel... Remember, you used to be able to, when you were in the field, you used to be able to lick a leaf and tell us that it was zinc deficient. You didn't even need a tissue sample. Well, uh, that's how good you were. Based on the 410,000 tissue sample results that we've got, about 82% of the time, I would have been right. So I always thought that was a pretty good practice. Yeah, batting 8,200. I mean, heck yeah. I mean, 18% of the time you're wrong is a better way of putting the 82% right. So, so zinc is deficient quite a bit. What is zinc actually doing in the plant? So I always think of zinc as being the forklift in the plant. Zinc is the piece of the puzzle that moves nutrients throughout the plant. And that can happen at different times within that plant's life. For example, when you put the seed in the ground, specifically a corn seed, you need zinc to move the carbohydrates from the endosperm or the test weight, the part that the farmers, our farmers, our owners sell, the test weight of the corn, you need those carbohydrates to be moved from the endosperm to the embryo, the germinating embryo. The faster you can move those carbohydrates, guess what? The faster you get emergence, the quicker the plant comes out of the ground. Same thing as you get into the growing season. As that plant uh, has a very small root mass, the more zinc around, the quicker it can get those nutrients from the seed. And remember, our corn plant is still living off a seed up until that V5, V4 timing. So we could have four or five leaves out of the ground, and most of our nutrients are still coming from that seed. So I can't help but think about the Tesla rocket that's being launched, the largest rocket with the most lift, and it has multiple stages of boost from these rockets. And it's actually a three-stage rocket in that sense. Is that a little bit like zinc where there's multiple stages of lift that you need as it goes from a seed to a teenage plant at knee high up to an adolescent plant at shoulder high and an adult plant at tassel? Well, kind of, but our way of applying zinc is almost better than the Tesla rocket. We got four stages that we can move from, not three. So those four stages, uh, the ways we can apply zinc to the corn plant would be, number one, on the seed. That's probably the first and foremost. And all of our cropland brand seed that come out of the answer plots is treated with zinc. The number two way to apply it would be in furrow. So having a phosphorus-based starter, a balanced starter with the zinc into that starter would put that zinc right next to the seed as it germinates. The number three way would be as an in-season foliar application. So this would occur potentially with a herbicide or potentially with a plant health application. And then, of course, the fourth way is where we kind of started this conversation is how do we make that soil be as productive as we possibly can so building the soil and there's a few different ways that you can put zinc into the soil but that begins with taking a soil test so on other micronutrients in corn you know zinc's really important you said it's the forklift of the plant and there's multiple stages that it's really important at what's the next micronutrient that's really important So in my mind, the next micronutrient that's important in corn would be the boron. And where I would consider boron to be the most important would be at that tasseling time frame. 
So if you look in the literature or read the books, a lot of times you'll see boron becomes uh, important. And even in some of our literature, boron is very important in the seed or in furrow. Probably don't want to put it in furrow, though. It's toxic to the seed. So we would have some issues in putting boron in furrow. A lot of times uh, I'll have a few guys try it, that sort of thing, but definitely do not want to make that recommendation across the board of putting it in furrow. we got to remember, because boron is mobile in the soil, now it becomes an issue of how do we actually treat that soil and how do we get it in the plant. So most of the time our application of boron is going to be as a foliar application. It's going to be treated to the leaves. And where we see that being the most important, again, like I said, is that tasseling time in corn because the plant actually makes a stretch or has a strategy of moving boron from the leaves to the reproductive parts of the corn plant. So the plant will move it up to the tassel, move it down to the silk, and you'll end up with a deficiency of boron throughout the rest of that corn plant and boron's main function is taking the carbohydrates made from photosynthesis and transferring them right to the stock. So if your leaves are left efficient, and Joel, I know how you get when you're hungry, more hangry than anything. So no, if your leaves are left hangry, right, how efficient is that plant going to be at actually making sure that offspring go to the ear, making sure that pollen longevity is kept during that hot, dry time and the tasseling time when we find in July where we might not have had rain for three weeks. So knowing that your boron's efficient definitely makes sure that pollination and that whole forming the embryo process in the ear occurs efficiently. So boron's really important during the reproductive time. And even later in the season, I always think that the late season part of the corn plant is such an amazing manufacturing story from taking all of the stored nutrients in the leaves and trying to drive those into the ear. From what I've observed, boron plays an important role in that too. Yeah. So from what we look at in the literature is over 70% of our photosynthesis come from those top seven leaves on that corn plant. So if you count, take that tassel leaf and count your leaves all the way down, about 70% of your photosynthesis come in there. And what photosynthesis does is that produces the carbohydrates or the sugars that go and feed that test weight. So a lot of the yield comes from test weight, but then you also get some late season abortion, some tip abortion on that ear, and all that is definitely influenced by the nature of boron within that leaf. I think we've seen that a number of times in the answer plot demos where we've got a late season application of boron and you can see a little bit better tip fill in some situations. Is that all because of the pollen life that's extended or just its role in the plant? So I think that could be a combination of many different things. My colleagues to the south and to the west always correct me when we talk about boron application at tassel because that's a function of rainfall. Mm -hmm. So if you're limited in rainfall and you don't have your boron on, perhaps maybe you're not going to see that tip fill that we normally see when you have some more rainfall as you head east and maybe a little bit north. So think about maybe where you're at in the Corn Belt and how you would treat those nutrients as far as where they land on the hierarchy. Yeah, you talked about boron being mobile in the soil, and it's mineralized from organic matter, so it's brought out from your organic matter. Nitrogen's mobile, boron's mobile. How come it works to foliar apply boron, but foliar applied nitrogen isn't as easy? So that's the thing with micronutrients, is micronutrients, I would argue, are just, if not slightly more important than macronutrients. The problem is, is because we spend... Across that acre, we spend fifty, sixty, seventy-five dollars on P and K. Spend about the same on nitrogen, depending upon how good you are at playing the markets for nitrogen. Like if you bought it two months ago versus 
now. We spend so much money on the macronutrients that we tend to put as growers or as agronomists, we tend to put way more weight on those macronutrients than we do on the micronutrients. However, as far as the plant function goes, those micronutrients, even though they are small, needed in quantity and maybe relatively small in price compared to our macronutrients, they're just as important as performing the function in the plants than, than the macros can be. So, John, obviously, it's pretty exciting to see the 2017 NutriSolutions results come back to us here and seeing some differences from, you know, 16 to 17. looks like there's a little bit more zinc deficiencies. looks like there's maybe just a slight 4% more potassium deficiencies. Nitrogen looks like there was 3% more nitrogen deficiencies. So it looks like overall some of the big nutrients are up a little bit in being deficient. Sometimes when we talk about these nutrients, we talk about the relationship between two particular nutrients, whether it's nitrogen to sulfur or nitrogen to potassium, you know, and this is one of the things that an in-season tissue sample is really, really important on. Can you talk a little bit about why those ratios exist? And as a grower, what should I actually use that ratio to do? I like to look at the different tissue samples that we see coming across. And uh, first thing I do is look at trends like we have just got done talking about. But then next is looking at those relationships and trying to pick out some key relationships of how I can make that decision maybe in season or maybe for next year in my management practices. And four nutrients that I really consider looking at when I'm making those relationships are nitrogen, potassium, sulfur, and zinc. So here's the way they lay out. And it's kind of complicated when you start to look at the processes that are going on within the plant. But I have maybe kind of simplified it, maybe oversimplified it. But here's the way I think of it is, first off, if you think of a grain leg, and as we're pulling in grain to the farm, we're taking in and we're dumping that corn down the dump, and it's on the drag going up to the leg. Potassium is going to be the cups on your leg. So as, as that leg is going around and around, potassium is the cups. The more cups you have in the leg, guess what? The more grain you got going up into the plant. So first off, you have that potassium, all the cups on that leg. Now, the grain portion of it is going to be your nitrogen. So potassium is going to take up nitrogen. And that's going to be your grain. It's going to be moving it up. Now, anybody that knows is the more cups you put on the leg, depends how big your pump is at, or how big your motor is at the top to run that leg. Sulfur is going to be your motor. So if you don't have a big motor but you got too many cups on the leg, the ability of, for you to become nitrogen deficient or perhaps potassium deficient could happen very, very quickly. And that's how we can read those nutrients within that plant is comparing an end decay ratio within that tissue sample as it comes back. Last nutrient that I mentioned was a micronutrient, zinc. And I said before, zinc's job is being the forklift in the plant. So the ability for that zinc to take the nitrogen off of that leg or out of those cups and pack it into the cells as efficiently as it possibly can is very important. So the more you have those four nutrients working in the combination of putting the grain in the bin, the quicker your plant can store those nutrients and actually utilize them to build proteins and carbohydrates. So one of the ways that was interesting to see this story unfold, uh, obviously uh, a grower that can run an irrigation pivot is uh, they can virtually make it rain. And when you can do that, some of them are also putting some fertigation through there. They're putting some UAN and some ATS, some ammonium thiosulfate, so a nitrogen and sulfur in there. When you see a grower fertigating and they're running something like ammonium thiosulfate in, what does the following week's tissue sample look like? So if we're doing weekly tissue sample and we're fertigating it, I can see almost from week to week what those samples might be. And this is where I think with the fertigating part, this is where it gets really fun. 
the tissue sampling is you can look and say, hey, if I'm targeting a 12 to 1 ratio of nitrogen to sulfur within that tissue, which is probably for the most part where I want to be throughout that growing season, and I know I'm a little bit low in nitrogen, I can bump up my 32 and bump down my ATS and I can tweak that from week to week. The next week, maybe I got to spin on another, maybe a tenth to a quarter. Now I can tweak that ratio, that N to S ratio. So I'm always keeping that into the right realm of things. Potassium, it gets a little bit more difficult if you want to start messing with the N to K ratio. But I think the thing, you, if you wanted to target a ratio, you want to see maybe your farm be from 1.6 to 1 to 1.4 to 1 as far as the ratio of having potassium to nitrogen within that field. You know, in-season decisions are a key part to optimizing inputs per bushel. With the 410,000 tissue samples that we've got, we also built a crop model, the R7 field forecasting tool, based off of the in-season ground truthing that goes on in a tissue sample. And I, I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about is beyond just using a tissue sample to look at your NDK, NDAS ratios, that's actually an in-season decision tool where we've used some machine learning techniques and some crop modeling techniques to help drive a return on investment number out of an in-season decision like nitrogen. Did you have any experience this summer running any field forecasting tool observations? Yes. Yeah, so you said machine learning. As an agronomist, that just makes me sometimes get a little worried. And I think maybe our farmer audience probably thinks that as well. So let's back up here. The best thing about having machine learning on our side is if we have tissue sampling, we can have an input into that machine learning and make sure if it's turning in another direction. So one of my great experiences with FFT this year was having a tissue sample to go into the field forecasting tool to, in my mind, teach the machine what was actually going on in that field. So I had several experiences by doing that as saying, hey, this is what the model's saying. Here's where we put in our hybrid and our planting population. And we also changed the nitrogen rate based on some recommendations. But we always had that question in the back of your mind is, really, do I trust this machine to make some of those decisions? Because a lot of times what we found was maybe the decisions we were making were already partly mostly right we didn't change a whole heck of a lot of things but when we put that tissue sample in it basically helped us reconfirm and build confidence in the model that we were certainly headed in that right direction so it was a great way of pairing into that field forecasting with the fear of machine learning yeah so you know machine learning may seem a little bit fear invoking but you know do you use netflix no, I'm still stuck on Redbox. Okay, so you're still stuck on Redbox. Well, when listeners use Netflix, that machine learning is the same technology that they're using. When you select a show that you like, that model is learning on what shows and genres you like and then trying to surface more of those to your watch list so that you can watch more of what you want. So the machine learning you know, in both situations, the tissue sample helps predict more of what you need. In Netflix, you selecting the show that you already want to watch helps them predict what shows you might want to watch. So you're saying the reason that my last three movies that came from Redbox were kind of crappy was because I wasn't using machine learning to help me make my decision on my watching you, habits. You may invest a whole evening watching a terrible movie by not utilizing machine learning in your day-to-day. Gosh, Joel, thanks for the insight. <laughs> Where can farmers get more information about specific nutrient trends in their state? So I think uh, first off is going to answerplot.com and looking at a, throughout the year, we'll put out several publications that you can see some of these trends. But the biggest thing is going to be talking to one of our owners 
in the countryside that has access to our information. And then the other thing is if you haven't taken a tissue sample, make sure you get yourself connected with a lab that is locally trusted and associated with one of our owners, and they'll definitely put you in the right direction to make sure your NutraSolutions 360 is on your farm. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperfer, the Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. And joining us in the studio today, agronomist John Zook. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes and thedealwithyield.com. 